Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast, and thank you for joining with us to worship and learn more about God. We are so excited to have you be a part of this week's service. For more podcasts and services from past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Now, enjoy the message. Yay, good morning, everyone. How are you? Well, yeah. Welcome back. I'm back from vacation. I learned two things. I'm allergic to sun, which means I just burn, blister, and peel, right? And I don't care for Florida. I'm just going to throw it out there. It's, 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 I think it's overrated. I'm sorry. And uh, I no longer will vacation in Florida. Unless my wife wants me to go, then I'm going to go to Florida. <laughs> It'll be completely fine. <laughs> well, welcome to Renaissance. My name is Jeff, and I'm one of the leaders here. And um, it, uh, I'm, uh, I'm on the fence on whether or not I should open this way. So I'm going to do it anyways. How many West Wing fans in the room? Okay. All right. Yes, well done. West Wing is a wonderful television show. There's an episode. I don't remember which one. I didn't really prepare this, so let's just see what happens at this point. Um, there's an episode where a President Bartlett comes into the room, and everyone stands up. Except for one particular woman, she's a reporter with something, and they have this little exchange back and forth, and he finishes his statement with something like this. Oh, and by the way, whenever the President of the United States walks into a room, everyone stands. That's a make-believe show, it's a make-believe whatever, but it made me think of this thing that churches do oftentimes when the, wor- when the words of God are read. That sometimes we're just going to lounge, it's fine, sit back, we bought comfy chairs for you, you're welcome. Right, so it's real easy to sit back. Already I've seen some of you yawn. It's okay, it's all good, it's all good. But I wonder if, if this morning, if we just did something that maybe is um, honoring to God, why don't we, and we don't do this ever at Renaissance, so if you're visiting, haha, welcome, right? But would you stand? I wanna read Psalm 51, and we're gonna stand while we listen to God's word. Oh, this feels right. This might be new for us. We might do this from now on. So I'm going to read Psalm 51. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't even like sweat it. We're going to put words on the screen behind me, and you can follow along there. Um, I just want to set the stage with where we're going to go today. So I'll read this and listen with your hearts. Psalm 51 says this, to the choir master, that this is a psalm of David, written by David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And we'll discuss what that is in a little bit. Verse 1 says this. David cries out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me, O God, with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken or crushed, some other translations read, Rejoice, hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities, God. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. And you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise those. And I'll stop there. There are two more verses and you can read those uh, as homework. But let's just pray for a moment and ask God to encounter us. We've already prayed. What's up with all the praying at Renaissance? (laughs) We believe God hears us when we pray. Would you bow your heads? God, thank you for our time together. Thank you that we can come back together and gather um, in your presence with one another, the people you have chosen to gather. We don't take this moment lightly, but we sit before you and we ask that you would speak to us, that you would give us the wisdom David speaks about, that you bring joy of salvation to all of us again, Lord. We could use some joy in our salvation, oh God. So God, Holy Spirit, would you be with us and open our eyes to see in our ears, we would hear what you'd have for us. We give this time to you. We love you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, you could be seated if you'd like. <laughs> or you can do what I'm going to do and stand for the next 30 minutes. So I was um, thinking this past week of how many times the Bible uh, repeats itself. Whether it be certain phrases that are repeated all through Scripture from the Old Testament through the New Testament, or maybe themes and or ideas, there seems to be this repetition of sorts of God's Word, the authors of God's Word, just repeating things time and time again. Now, you have to understand, this is a... a this was done intentionally. It was, it was before like word processors, before you could underline text or bold font your text or highlight your text, that this repetition is intentional because what it does is it lays emphasis to what God is wanting us to hear. So when the authors used things like this repeated phrases or repeated themes, it was intentional that God would have us draw our attention to it. What, I, what I've learned since I've been studying the Bible for some 25 years now is that many times um, all of the scripture seems to point back to some narrative found in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 is what we call the creation story, the creation narrative. It all begins there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then we're on a ride from this point. In the beginning, it says that God created everything. And at the end of the Bible, it says that God is going to recreate everything. So the whole story arc, as I've been talking about sort of ad nauseum here lately, is that God is doing this building, this creating or something. And so this last week, as I was reading Genesis 1 and 2 again, just going back there from my own devotional time, looking at the words and what God would speak to me, I was struck by this phrase um, that God created us, mankind, in his image. That's what the Bible tells us in Genesis 1 and 2, that in his image, God created us. Now, when I think about that for a moment, it's hard for us to consider. When you look around at yourself and maybe myself and maybe the people sitting in the row next to you, that the person sitting by you is an image bearer of God because they oftentimes don't act it. Yes? Don't nudge your, your spouse or right, your, right? But sometimes we don't see that. So, so I was really sort of conflicted as I was reading this statement that I was made in the image of God, that God's image 
um, I carry with me. And I started thinking about all the characteristics or components of me as a person. I have a spiritual side. That's okay. Take your time. Go ahead and answer. Um, I have a spiritual side to me. I have an intellectual side, um, sort of. I have an emotional side. <laughs> yes, ask my wife. I have an emotional side, right? I have a social side. I don't like people. That's my social side. <laughs> <laughs> which is, I just laugh why God made me a pastor, right? <laughs> People. And, uh, you know, and I have a physical side. And I know the metaphor breaks down a little bit because God is spirit, doesn't really have a body. I know that. But when I think of myself as a, 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 an image bearer of God, I, I think of those things of God too. It would not be wrong of us to say that God has emotions. Would that be okay to say? Of course he does. Yeah, if you read the Bible, he's filled with emotions. It would not be wrong to say that God has a spiritual side. Yes, God is spirit for sure. Intellectually, he's smart. We talked about his wisdom already. All of these things. And what I've learned is that as God is taking many of us on a journey from um, uh, what we, the Bible would call a new birth, or if we become uh, Christians, we have faith in Jesus Christ, that God is making us new, which we'll get to in a moment, and we set apart on a journey that God is taking us to, to transform us, to make us look more and more like his son, Jesus. If there is a mature person in all things, spiritual, emotional, social, relational, all of that stuff, if there's a person, person who's complete in all of those things, it's Jesus Christ. Yes? Yes. And God is leading us on that journey towards that. I, a lot of people call this sanctification, which is a fun word to say. But God is maturing us and growing us. I've been a Christian 25 years now, and I believe I've grown spiritually. I've matured spiritually. But if I can confess something to you, there are moments in my life where I feel like I should be bigger than this right now. I should have more maturity than I'm, I'm showing right now. Um, last year, I've already confessed this, so I won't repeat all that, but last year was a big faith issue for me. And you would think someone who's been a Christian for 25 years would have the faith thing down. And what I'm learning is I have some immaturities in my life, in particular spirituality. And what I'm also learning is a lot of my components of my life are connected to one another. As God is growing me and maturing me spiritually, he also wants to do so emotionally. And this is where the rub came into me last week. I've been reading a book that a, a pastor, mentor, counselor, friend, right, recommended I read. And I was confronted by this reality that sometimes our spiritual growth, because it's tethered to the other aspects of our life, is limited because, for example, me emotionally, because I'm not growing emotionally, my spiritual health or my spiritual growth is held back too. Is this making sense? And maybe you feel some of this too. You wonder why on earth have I been following Jesus for so long? Am I still struggling in some of these areas? And I'm just throwing it out there. This is just my hypothesis, is that possibly there's another area that you need to grow in. And for me, I'm learning that it's emotional. But I need to mature emotionally. And some of you are like, finally. <laughs> yes, finally. I've been waiting for this today. But it's in this book that I was reading that I ran across this sentence. And I'll read it with you here. That a symptom of emotional immaturity in a person is that the person will cover up their brokenness. They will cover up their weakness. And they try to hide their failures. This is not a therapy session for me, but I'm just going to say these. I do that sometimes. And maybe you do too. And maybe the Lord would just say to us, there's, there's an aspect of your life that I'm wanting to grow you in. 
And all too often, we spend so much of our time focusing on the spiritual things, and they matter to us. But there's also an emotional side of us. If we are made in God's image, and if he is growing us up to maturity in Jesus Christ, then our emotions should grow too. And the problem with our emotional immaturity is it's sometimes not easily seen. If someone has a physical shortcoming or an intellectual shortcoming, like Joe, right? (laughs) Right? It's readily apparent. Everyone can see it. It's on display. (laughs) Oh, Joe, don't sit in the front row. (laughs) But the emotional immaturity is hidden. In fact, you oftentimes don't see it until you get to know a person for a little while. How many of you got with someone, right? Man, this, is the, this dude's amazing. This chick's amazing. This is whatever. And after like a couple months, you're like, whoa. <laughs> and you're like, put on the brakes, put on the, right? Okay, so that's all I'm saying. So, so when I read that, I began to realize, okay, there's, there's some emotional immaturity in me. And this is not a therapy session for me, right? I, I've already said that. But I want us to just pause and consider that. Maybe there's something that we need to grow in. Which brings me to Psalm 51. Because when we read Psalm 51, just so you know, the book of Psalms, there's 150 Psalms in it. And they're all poems, they're hymns, they're songs to be sung, oftentimes in a worship setting, not unlike we're doing here. And David, the author of that psalm, seems to have an emotional maturity that I hope to attain to one day. That he seems to address this issue when he's confronted by Nathan, the prophet. And we're going to tell the story in a moment. He, he responds in a way that seems to be emotionally mature. And I asked myself this question, would you respond in the same way if you were confronted by something in your life? If you were confronted by sin or transgression? If God revealed to you, Jeff, a failure, a brokenness in you, would you respond like David? Or would you continue to hide it like you've been doing for the last 20 some years? The backstory of David's story looks something like this, and this is Cliff Notes' version. We're going to fly through it real quick. David is the king of Israel. He's appointed king by God himself, and he's serving as the leader of God's people. In one spring, it says when all the other nations send their kings out to war, David stays home for some reason, and we could go into that at another time. But David stays home, and while all his um, warriors go out to battle with all of his generals, he sits back eating grapes, drinking, I don't know, Hefeweizen, I don't know. He's doing something, right? And at one moment during the day, he walks out and he sees a beautiful woman in her house taking a bath. And he sends his servants to go get this woman. This woman's name is Bathsheba, taking a bath. You can't make this stuff up, right? (laughs) Now, David's the king, and whatever King David wants, King David gets. And he sends his servants to go get Bathsheba and brings her to him. And then they come together, if you know what I mean. And what often happens after that happens is she she becomes pregnant. The problem is this. One of the problems is this, is that David's married. (laughs) He already has a spouse, so this is adultery for sure. But it gets worse than that. But Bathsheba is also married. In fact, her husband, Uriah, is one of David's fighting men. He's off to battle, fighting, while David's back home with his wife. And you can imagine David wants to hide this transgression, this sin. So he he sends for Uriah to come home from the battlefront and says, why don't you go to your wife, basically. He brings him home, hoping that Uriah will go into his wife. And then when she's pregnant in nine months or gives birth to a baby in nine months or so, he'll just assume it's his. But Uriah is so devoted to David, he doesn't even go to his, his wife while he's back in Jerusalem. 
He sleeps outside the king's palace. And so this doesn't work. So David tries it again. He goes, I'll just get him drunk. That'll surely make him go home to his wife, right? There's a whole lot of commentary I could throw on that right there. But I'll leave that. Okay? And even that doesn't work. Uriah is so devoted to David, he won't go spend time with his wife. And so David comes up with the only solution that he can think of. He's going to have Uriah murdered. And he does. He kills Uriah. Long story. You can read about this in 2 Samuel chapter 11, 2 Samuel chapter 12. And he has him killed. And everything seems to be going fine. In fact, about a year passes. And then we see that Nathan, who is a prophet of God, confronts David about his sins. He comes to David and he tells them this story. Again, you can read about it in 2 Samuel. And after he's confronted with the story, David says something. I want to read this for you. It's, it's uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. David responds to Nathan, who was sent by God to confront him with these words. I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned. And then Nathan said to David that the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. And we can get to that in a little bit later. But just know this. David does something, not just with confession of his sin, which I think is always good for us, but he doesn't try to bury it or hide it any longer. For over a year, he was trying to hide it. And now he has this opportunity to grow, and he does so. Second Samuel, just so you know, was not written by David. Someone else wrote that, probably Samuel, right? We don't know. It doesn't matter. I'm just saying, but David did write something. He wrote Psalm 51 that we just read. That this is an expose, so to speak, of his fall, of his transgression against Uriah, against Bathsheba, and against God himself. He doesn't try to bury it any longer. He becomes, if you will, right, the Taylor Swift of his generation and takes all of that emotional baggage <laughs> and writes a song about it <laughs> that, we all, that we all sing when we're driving down the road in our car. But think about that, that he takes this moment of failing and shortcoming and he writes a worship song. He writes a song that the nation of Israel would probably would have recited and or sang together. In fact, as he wrote it, he says, this is for the choir master. Make sure when we gather next Sunday, children, everyone, we're going to sing this song about my failing. Hmm. Now, how can he stand in that place, having walked through a terrible situation, caught, he's broken two commandments at a minimum at this point, right? Thou shalt not murder and thou shalt not take adulterous people or whatever that thing is. You know what I'm saying? He's broken some commandments. And so now he's confronted with all of this. And so he writes this song about it. And the thing about sin is it has this way of just sort of darkening our eyes, blinding our hearts. I was reading a commentary by a guy named Andrew Murray. He's a South African pastor from the 1900s. And in his commentary on Psalm 51, he said these words, man is by nature so entirely under the power of sin that he can hide it even from himself when he has committed it. And so God in his great love and care for David sends Nathan the prophet to expose it in him. David thought he had gotten away with it. David thought no one had saw it. He had killed Uriah, the only person he could possibly know about it. Um, or would find out and expose him. And he thought he'd gotten away with it. But God saw it, and God loved him enough and showed grace enough to him that he exposed it to him through Nathan. Now, here we're going to say this. God will use the Holy Spirit to oftentimes expose sin and transgression in our own lives. 
And it should do what it did in David's life. It should drive us to a place of repentance so that we would ask for renewal. That's what we're hoping to have. But know this, there will be times when you're reading scripture and God will speak to you through the spirit and he'll say something about something in your life. How many people just by nodding at me would agree that they've been reading scripture and God has spoken to them about an issue in their life, right? There's a few of us in the room. How many times have you been singing a worship song at church and you've been convicted because the words you're singing don't seem to be true to you? That you, um, I won't call you this, but you might call yourself a liar because the words that you're saying aren't in fact true to you. How many times have we been in that situation where maybe even someone else might come to us and say, hey, bro, um, I know we're friends and stuff, but I've seen this in your life. And I want, I want you to know that, that this is an issue. How many of us have had loving friends, mentors, right, advocates who, who desire the best for us come to us and address things in our life? And if you don't have those people in your life, find some. When David's confronted by what's happening in his life, he, he quickly turns and shows a level of maturity that just shook me to my core. Um, so what I want to do is to take us through what I would think is maybe the, the thought process or, or maybe go through these different verses and see how David walked through this exposing of his transgression and his sin. I want to start here in verse one. It says where he cries out to God and says, I want you to have mercy on me, O God. Now, when we look to the definition of mercy, we just know that it means this, that this is compassion or forgiveness that is shown towards someone by someone who has the power to punish or harm someone else. He knows God stands in this position as the rightful judge and creator of everything to punish David by death, just so you know, for his transgressions. And he cries out the only word that seems to work, mercy. Have mercy, God. And he says abundant mercy as if it needs to be greater than even his own transgressions because David's transgressions are great. And he calls upon a greater mercy in God. David knows he deserves punishment and he asks for mercy. And he says here in verse 2, 1, I'm sorry, verse 1, blot out my transgressions. The idea here before you could erase or backspace on your keyboard, they would, things would be written down in pen and parchment or parchment and quill or whatever it was. And the only way to get rid of something is just to take ink, if you will, and just to pour it on top of what was written. That's the only way to get rid of something. And he's, he's talking about his sin in that way. He's like, I want you to blot out my transgressions. And hear me, I don't think that at this moment that David is asking God to blot them out from his eyes. I think David's asking God to blot them out from David's eyes. And I only say that because verse 9 it later says, God, I want you to hide your face from my sins. God, blot out my transgressions, right? I don't want you to see my sins. I think David at this point is like so sick of remorse, so sick with shame. He's asking God in mercy and compassion to hide even his own sins from him. Do you know how free of a people we would be if, if that was real for us? That if God would blot out our shortcomings, even from ourselves, because how many times we always talk about the devil. Well, we don't always talk about it. It sounded weird. You know what I mean? But like when, when we talk about like the devil who comes back to us and he's always trying to remind us of all of our shortcomings in this and that, I, maybe it's the devil, but it's maybe just us who just play that thing over and over. Jeff, why did you say that? 
why, why, why did you respond that way? Why did you, right? And in God's great mercy, uh, he can blot out the transgressions even from our own eyes. Transgression, just so you know, means intentional sin. I need you to sit with that for a moment. That this isn't like, whoops, there's a sin. Whoops, I sinned again. This was a belabored, thoughtful, considered, intentional choice. We saw it in the story in 2 Samuel. This is something he chose to do. And he chose to do it in a sinful way against God. So he continues in verse 3. He knows that these intentional sins, these transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. For sure he sinned against Bathsheba. For sure he sinned against Uriah and the nation of Israel as the de facto leader there. He sinned against all of them too. But he knows ultimately, this is a theological statement, ultimately he's sinning first against God. And all of our sins should hurt us the way it hurts David in this moment. That our sin should bother us in this regard. It should drive us to the compassion and the forgiveness that is in Christ Jesus. He says, my sin is ever before me. Sin appears to be the issue for David. It's not, uh-oh, I've been caught. I hope I don't get punished hard. Uh-oh, I hope they don't say bad things about me. No, that's not the issue. We know people like that. The only reason they show remorse is because they've been caught. This is, the issue for David appears to be the sin in his life. That's the thing that bothers him. And I wonder if that's the thing that bothers us sometimes. Is it sin or is it because we get caught sinning? I'll leave you to fight that one out with the Lord. He prays for forgiveness. He asks for mercy, right? He petitions for mercy. He confesses his sins to God. And then he begins to pray for forgiveness in verse 7. He said, purge me with hyssop. <laughs> that's fun. What is that? What is hyssop? It's fun to say. Hyssop. Say it with me now. <laughs> hyssop. <laughs> Sound like we're like snakes. Hyssop. This is one of those moments, guys, where I, I mentioned that the Bible repeats itself. Hyssop is one of those themes in the Bible that recurs time and time again. Let me unpack this for you. This could help us. The first time we see hyssop is in the story of the Passover, where God's people were held in Egypt, and God's going to send a Passover or a death angel over the people, and they're told to take some blood of a lamb, a spotted or a, a blemishless lamb, and kill it, and to take the blood and put it on the, the doorposts. Have you heard the story? Well, the thing they're told to take um, to put the, the blood on the doorpost is hyssop. It's a little bit like leafy bush thing, and they take hyssop and they put it on the doorpost. Uh, we run into hyssop again in Leviticus chapter 13, 14, when we're seeing, seeing the purification rites for lepers. If you know what leprosy is, it's a skin disease. But here's the, the, the most damaging thing about the skin disease for the Israelites is that it caused people to live in isolation from one another. If a person had leprosy, they had to live by themselves, isolated from everyone else. They could not go to temple to worship. They could not do any of those other things. In fact, when they walked around, they were to cower before others, cover their face and, and claim unclean, unclean when they walked around, unclean. It was a curse, if you will, of sorts. But hyssop was used to clean and purify the leper. 
We can keep reading hyssop. We go all the way to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, Jesus Christ, your Lord, my Savior, my Savior, your Lord, was hanging on a cross. He was dying for the sins of the world. And in the middle of anguish and pain, he utters a couple words. He says these words, I'm thirsty. You remember this? And it says that someone grabbed a sponge. You know what the sponge was? It was hyssop. And they took this hyssop and they took some, some, um, some wine, some spirited wine or whatever, and they put it up in Jesus' mouth and he drank it and then uttered the last two words, or the last few words, it is finished. Hyssop says something to us. Hyssop, David's cry out. The Bible, the authors of the Bible is telling us that there is an opportunity to be made clean to be made white as snow, to be clean so we can live in community with God all again. We don't have to live in isolation and in fear of our uncleanliness or our sin, our transgression is not gonna push us far away from God, but can actually bring us closer to God through hyssop. And, and, and David is asking to be cleansed with hyssop and he's not, hear me, and he's not asking a priest to do it. He's asking the only one in the universe who can do it. God, he says, God, I need you to cleanse me. I don't know if David understood the whole sacrificial system. He must have understood it maybe better than us, but it doesn't seem to last, does it? <laughs> you drag a bull to the priest and he slaughters it and your sins are atoned for until Monday, as we always talk about, <laughs> and you have to drag another bull to the altar, whatever, time and time again. That sacrificial system that the priests are involved in is good, right? But it's not ultimate. That the ultimate sacrifice would be Jesus Christ, who would be, like for us, a Passover lamb slaughtered so that we could be cleansed with hyssop, so that we could be made clean and pure. David understands the boundaries of the sacrificial system and goes right to the source and says, God, I need you to clean me. In Jesus' name, I say this over you. So many of you are trying so many things to become clean and it's not working for you because you haven't asked God to do it. That you were leaning upon your own discipline, tenacity, political persuasion, whatever it is that makes you right in your eyes. And you haven't called on God. God is the only one who can clean us. And he does so through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. And to use Jesus as anything other than the savior and the purifier of all souls is to minimize him, is to relegate him to be but a moral teacher that lived some 2,000 years ago with pithy wisdom to throw around. It's kind of fun to say in mixed company sometimes, Jesus, Jesus? I remember when I first became a Christian, saying Jesus was hard for me. <laughs> I only ever used his name as a cuss word. This is the upside down the change that God can do in our lives. We need to be purged and cleaned by Jesus. Hyssop, right? This is the hyperlink repeated over and over and over again in the Bible. And I'm moving quickly now because I only have 23 minutes left. So that's a joke. I have three minutes. 
I'm going to go fast because I have to do some things. Uh, verse 10, he says, create in me a new heart. The word create that is used here is the exact same word that's used in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Where it says God created the heavens and the earth. Theologians call this creation ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. That God created everything that exists out of nothing. He didn't take a bunch of sawdust and some glue and build the universe. He made it out of nothing. And what David is implying here is that God needs to create something inside of us, inside of him, out of nothing. Only God can do it. We actually, hear me, and this will free some of us, you don't bring anything to the table in this regard. (laughs) That the new heart that you are given is from God alone, only alone. The only thing we bring to the whole situation or whatever transaction is that we bring our brokenness, our confession, our asking, our, our willingness to accept what God can do for us. He says, create in me a new heart. Renew a right spirit inside of me. This is a brand new newness that comes, a revival of sorts that comes with it. And he asks that God not take his spirit away from him. He says, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. David was intimately aware of what it looks like when God pulls his Holy Spirit from someone. His predecessor, King Saul, rebelled against God and God removed him. Removed his spirit from Saul and it ended badly for him. David knows this and he's pleading, God, don't take your spirit from me. And then he continues, verse 13, to give thanks He says, I'm going to teach all the other transgressors your ways, and sinners are going to return to you. I love that. Deliver me from my blood guiltness, oh God, verse 14. Right? My tongue is going to sing aloud of your righteousness. Oh Lord, open my lips, he said, and my mouth will declare your praise. He begins to give thanks for what God has done for him. Nathan the prophet said that your life won't be taken from you. God has forgiven your sins, right? And all he can do is praise now. So I want to close with a couple things here. I feel like I've gone a a couple different directions here. Let me just say two things. Um, What does this mean for you and for me? Well, it means a couple different things because I don't know who you are. See, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, if you already have faith, then you've already received these things that David is talking about, that we have already received. See, we've already confessed our sins to God, and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. So here's here's the wonderful thing for us Christians. We don't have to go back and belabor our confessions again and again and again. We can confess them to one another, and I think the Bible talks about that, and that's a good thing, right? I think we should be honest with our sins and confess them to one another. But hear me when I say this, God has forgiven you of your sins. If you believe in him, his son Jesus Christ died on a cross once a long time ago. And I don't care how bad you are, some of you are terrible. Christ is not gonna die again for you. He already did. So what moves us as Christians then is not what of confession and petition for mercy. Ladies and gentlemen, you have received it fully. You've been given the new heart. You have been washed white as snow. The shortcoming for us, for Christians in the room, is we need to praise him. We need to declare his goodness to all the people who would gather around to hear it. When we sing, sing loudly, 
God has given you a new heart. Open your mouth so that the world would know. Or don't. I don't know. Your call. I'm convicted by this. Praise him boldly, loudly. Confess these things. So if you're Christian, that's what we do. We move to thanksgiving. But if you're a non-Christian, right? If you're not a person who's totally surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, if you've not accepted Jesus, if you've not received forgiveness through the sacrifice of God's son, Jesus, then you need to follow the Psalm 51. (laughs) You need to ask for mercy. And I just want you to know, God has, he doesn't owe you mercy. You've sinned against him. He is the potter, you are the clay. He has every right to destroy you. He has every right to smash you. He has every right to purge you from all existence. He has every right to do so. And if you think, you, if you think differently, you're wrong. He has every right to do so. But you ask God who is rich in mercy forgives. He forgives. You ask for mercy. You confess your sins to him. You pray for forgiveness as David did. And then you pray for renewal. Create in me, oh God, a clean heart. Do a work that only you can do. And then follow follow the tutelage of thousands of years of Christians who have gone before you and praise him and his holy name. Praise him. Him. So I'm back from vacation, and um, everybody says, Isn't it so great to get away and rest? (laughs) You don't know me very well. Jeff and vacation don't go together very well. I'm so high strung. I'm so wound up. I'm so overdone, right? Vacation couldn't do for me what, what two days of meditating over Psalm 51 has done for me. It's given me so much peace and rest. I pray that for your heavy soul. I pray rest for you. If you're a believer here, just thank him for what he's done. Don't rehash all the things in your life. Just thank him. Oh, right? Let your children see you thank him for his goodness. How great is that? And if you want to know more about who Jesus is, if you want to know what it's like to confess to him and to ask him for mercy, after the service is over, the band's going to come up. We're going to sing one more song. After all of that, I would like to talk with you up here. We're going to have a couple people up here that would pray with you. And you could begin your journey today like David did. Brand new. Isn't that cool? Your call. I got another, I got a couple more pages I could go through. Are we okay? Okay. All right. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the story. 
Thank you for your, thank you for your, your, your story of, of not allowing any of your creatures to stay in sin. That you reveal it to all of us eventually. You did it to David. You do it for us. And so thank you for that. God, help us to now receive Jesus Christ, right? The lamb that was slain, the blood washed over us to make us pure and white. Help us to receive Jesus. Free us from shame and condemnation. Help us to live shackle uh, free, buoyant and light in Jesus Christ. And for everyone else, God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would convict you of your sin and that it would draw you to Jesus Christ, your Savior. He's the only one that can help you. So God, we thank you for everything that you do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to pray for you and make a connection with you. So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Here you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, or support Renaissance through online giving. We can't wait to hear from you.